Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily. On the show today, tips and strategies for overcoming obstacles and developing a more resilient mindset in the face of challenge and adversity. My guest today has inspired countless people around the world to better understand how they can capitalize on and leverage second chances in their own life in a way that not only allows them to get by, but to thrive and flourish in ways they had never imagined. My name is Brittany Wagner, and I am most known for my role on the Netflix documentary, Last Chance You. As you just heard from Brittany, she played a starring role in the Netflix series Last Chance You, which was one of the very first sport docuseries ever produced by Netflix. As an athletic academic counselor, Brittany helps student athletes who found themselves at a crossroad in their life due to struggling with the law and oftentimes coming from very dysfunctional family backgrounds plagued by trauma. Her impact was simply massive, and she helped so many of these athletes move beyond the personal failure to find true success in their lives, both academically and athletically, many of whom went on to play football professionally in either the NFL or the CFL. She helped these student athletes to really understand that their second chance in life was right in front of them, and that they were the ones that held the key to unlocking their future. But first and foremost, in order to do that, to unlock their future, they had to show up and be present and to do the hard work necessary to succeed, but most of all, to believe in themselves. The power of human connection really comes alive in Brittany's work, and you can see it so clearly in the Netflix series. When I watched it with my family, we were really drawn to the characters, the the football players, the football coaches, but in particular, the way that Brittany really worked with each of the athletes. And when it comes to human connection, one of the questions I really wanted to ask her was about early days in her life and the role that human connection played. So here she is reflecting on early days in her life and how she was always drawn to supporting the underdog and being there for them when others weren't? I think that I had, I had two loving parents um, that were educated and my dad is a psychologist. So that explains a lot. And my mom was a special ed teacher also explains a lot. And, and I, I had that, I had a sister, a loving sister. We had a, I had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful family, all the support um, that I could hope for. But I realize now, later in my life, I never really had confidence. I've, I've, and I don't know why. There was no, you know, there was no reason for me to not be confident. I never felt smart. I never felt really confident in in school or in other situations. I, it was, I was kind of that person that was mediocre at everything, but not really great at anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think that I knew that. 
you know, I, and so I, I don't know. I think that definitely affected my self-esteem. I was always the rule follower. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times in class and in school, I was the teacher's pet because I was going to obey the rules. I was going to sit still. I was going to do what I was supposed to do. But for some reason, and I don't know if it was something I was born with or if my parents really worked hard to instill it in me, but even as the teacher's pet, I was always concerned with those students who weren't. And I can remember my earliest memory of really being bothered by it was fourth grade. And I can remember in fourth grade, a a classmate constantly getting in trouble for everything. I mean, it was like he just, the teacher just could not stand the kid. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he would lean his chair back and she'd snap on him for not having all four legs on the floor. And, And he never had his homework and he never had lunch money. And it was just, you know, he was just always kind of that guy. And where everybody else, all my classmates would roll their eyes and, you know, be annoyed by him. I wanted to help him. Like it, it would break my heart, you know, that he wouldn't have his homework. And, and I, I, that's my earliest memory of really feeling like what happened to him? Mm -hmm. You know, like why, why, like, why is he, is he the different? Like, Mm -hmm. like, and, and I remember having those thoughts of, of really like wanting to know more about his story rather than just sitting back and dismissing him because he was annoying. And, and, and I don't really know where that came from. Again, I, you know, I don't know if that's something I was just born with or if it was something my parents instilled in me, but it's something that I've always had. I've always possessed that inside of me where I'm, I am always wanting to help the underdog. I had a question about early strengths. So you've already touched upon that because when I listen to early days in your life, I feel that there was a sense of being an observer and being really skilled at observing your surroundings and observing interactions. So when you think about your life early on, do you classify yourself early on, like in grade four, grade three, grade two, as an extrovert or an introvert? I've always been an extrovert. I I feel like the older I get, the more introverted I'm getting. Um, But I've always been an extrovert, but I have always had that intuition. Mm -hmm. I have a deep rooted intuition and I can walk in a room and, and I I will walk in a room and I will read the room and I have that awareness and that intuition. Um, But I can play the game, you know, with, with being extroverted and talking and, and um, being the life of the party, so to speak. I can do, I can do both, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's such a skill to have, you know, the power of the observer. And the reason why I asked you about the introvert extrovert thing is because I always thought I was an extrovert. And then I realized, oh my God, maybe I've been an introvert my whole life. And I've tried to present myself as an extrovert. So it was something I grappled and toggled with back and forth. But there was a great book written by Susan Cain called The Power of the Introvert in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And it really is about the power of the of observation. And what you describe is like, obviously, having deep empathy and compassion from an early age and, and really looking at your classmates and observing your surroundings and really feeling uh, for the underdog. 
And that comes alive so much in the the Netflix series, you know, Last Chance You. And so you heard a bit more about Brittany there, early days and always being drawn to the underdog. And when I reflect back on watching the series with my family, I was wondering because the cameras were always around. You never saw the cameras, of course, but you knew the people were there interviewing her. And in knowing Brittany, just in the short time that I have, like through the interview and reading her book and uh, really seeing her in action, you really feel that she's authentic. And despite the success that she found in her role, I thought to myself that filming the docuseries had to be incredibly difficult, but I really wanted to ask her about that. And you see Brittany as a person who always strives to be genuine in every interaction she has with the students that she works with, the student-athletes, that is. Um, But the filming of this series, I'm guessing, posed many challenges for her. So I wanted to ask her about that. And I know that, you know, just in our conversation, she really had to learn how to deal with the camera crew that was constantly in her space each day but to do so in a way that still allowed her authentic nature to come alive in the interactions with the students, uh, the student athletes during the filming. As well, uh, she had to grapple with vulnerability in order to be who she authentically was, in order to really honor her own talents and natural abilities, and to work with the athletes in ways that provided them with the tough love compassion and empathy that they needed in order to be successful. So here Brittany is uh, talking about the challenges of filming and the role of vulnerability in her work. It was always a challenge. I, I explain it as you get used to the human beings behind the apparatus. Mm-hmm. So I got, I had the same camera guy for two years. Um, I, I had a sound, the same sound tech and a producer that was I had the same kind of four people that were always with me and you get used to them. You get to know Luke, the camera guy, and you get to know Alex and you get to know the people behind the apparatus and you get comfortable with them being in your space and hearing your conversations. So sometimes you can forget that that there's a camera recording you because you're, you're focused on, you're seeing the camera, but you're looking in Luke's eyes or I could forget that there was a camera recording me and then it was going to be played for the whole world to see because I was focused on connecting with Luke, you know, and, and, and I would have to remind myself that where, you know, where those, the camera crew, where we had a relationship and I liked them and they liked me, they were, they also had a job. And I would have to remind myself that, you know, they have a job to do and their job necessarily isn't to make me look, fantastic. So, you know, my job was, was to, to do my job to the best of my ability and kind of forget that I liked them, you know, um, which is hard. It's, it's, it's hard and it takes a whole, um, I learned it takes a whole nother level of energy Mm -hmm. to just be yourself, do your job, and then also be aware of all of that. It's, it can be very draining and it, and it takes a lot out of you. A doubling down on your own authenticity. I think yeah. that's what came alive is that as I watched season one and two, 
and understanding the context more and more and imagining what it was like to be you in that situation and knowing that you have a good heart and knowing that you obviously are trying to be as authentic as possible, the role of vulnerability, right? So talk about your relationship with vulnerability and what you learned about yourself during the filming. Yeah, that was, that was hard. Um, because I, I'll say this, I think it was good for me that we were, I was the first season because hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Right. And, and I had no, I, I didn't have Netflix at the time. I had no idea really what was happening. I mean, I, I didn't have four seasons of a hit show to then, you know, analyze and, and try to live up to. I was, I was the first person. And so I, I went into it blind. I went into it not knowing if anyone would watch it or not and kind of thinking like, whatever, you know, like no one's going to watch this. This is not going to be that big of a deal. Just be yourself and don't worry about it, which was good for me because I did. I, I was myself. I, I, did, I wasn't worried about it. I didn't think anybody would care. Had I been season three, season four, I think it would have been a little bit harder. It would have been a little bit harder to be vulnerable and authentic mm-hmm. because I think you would have in the back of your mind, you know, are people going to like me? How, you know, is this mm-hmm. show going to be as big of a success as the ones before? So I think that was good for me. It, 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 was, it was hard for me to be vulnerable. And honestly, I don't know that I was as vulnerable in the show as I was in my book. Like, I I think that there was a lot that I didn't let them into in my life. I did let them into my home. I did let them see the relationship with my daughter, Mm -hmm. but I didn't go any further than that. Like they're they're, you know, they didn't know really anything about my personal life. I, I kind of, there was kind of a line there and, and I wasn't one of the characters that they were interested in doing that with, you know, they dove into the players, personal lives. They didn't really dive into mine and coach Stevens that much, um, which was good because there was, you know, there was kind of a line that they put in place with, with how vulnerable we had to be, um, which was probably good for me at the time. So you heard a little more about Brittany there and what it was like filming and the role of vulnerability and uh, that idea of having the film crew there every day, kind of watching her every move. Um, you know, we're going to jump into her book next. Um, and as she describes in her book, Next Chance You, Tools, Tips, and Tough Love for Bringing Your A-Game to Life, Brittany really felt a calling even before the Netflix series began to do something else with her life. And before the filming of seasons one and two, she she wasn't sure what her calling was at the time, but her desire to find her true calling began to unfold in the first two seasons of the show. And this is when she began to truly understand her own impact. And this challenged her to think about what was possible. Despite the success of the show, after the second season, she decided to walk away from her role as athletic academic counselor at Eastern Mississippi Community College, as well her involvement with the filming of the show. And she chose to do this to double down on her own talents and strengths and her dream to become a motivational speaker. 
She really felt that she needed to build her own platform to empower, inspire, and spread the important life lessons she learned while working at Eastern Mississippi. And although feeling a deep sense of fear about what was to come, she took the plunge and did it. And as they say, the rest is history. She has been hugely successful and has appeared on multiple stages across America sharing her message. She's been on top shows including Good Morning America. We have the star of the hit docuseries Last Chance You and now athletic academic counselor Brittany Wagner is bringing us her empowering message in her new book Next Chance You, Tools, Tips and Tough Love for Bringing Your A-Game to Life. Brittany, good morning. Hi, how are you? As well, she's been on countless radio shows and podcasts over the last few years. All right, State Champs fans, we have a special treat for you. Miss Brittany from Last Chance U stopped by our studio to talk about her time on the hit Netflix series, and she'll talk about what she has going on now. Brittany, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? So I hope that start to the podcast really gives you more context and background into who Brittany is, the work she's done, a little bit about filming, a little bit about early days, but she really is here today on my Run Your Life podcast to talk about her book, Next Chance You, and the biggest messages she hopes people will understand about the need to build a resilient mindset in order to remove self-imposed limitations that get in the way of success. We're going to jump into the rest of the interview between Brittany and I right now. And as you listen, I really do hope you find lots of takeaway that you can apply in your own personal and professional life. And with that, the rest of my interview with the amazing and inspiring Brittany Wagner. But I also think that there's this sense of comfort with self and then developing the deep confidence to be more vulnerable and share your story and your book is awesome. Um, and I think that you obviously developed um, deeper courage to tell your own truth. And I think that comes alive in the book. So my listeners, I, I really want them to get their hands on a copy of the book. And we're going to talk about the book more later, but I have to admit that you know, when I watched this series, one thing that I struggled with, like coming from my own, you know, why I connect so much with the story is that I come from a very dysfunctional background and I've had to work so hard in my life to overcome the dysfunction uh, that I grew up in. So I've had a uh, two brothers die, one from suicide because of depression and another one from drug addiction. But what saved my life, and I, I'm full disclosure, I've shared it before in talks that I've given is football. I found football, I found purpose, I found meaning. So when I watch the stories of some of the players, I connect with it so much. And then I think I had a shitty life, but then I look at their stories and I like, damn, like I can't even compare my life to theirs. And the one thing I struggled with was buddy, because he I had mixed feelings. Like I, I, the way he treated and spoke to the players, um, I thought about my own coaches. And when they spoke to me that way, I, I was very fragile, mm -hmm. especially as a quarterback. I needed somebody that would give me love, be uh, compassionate and support me and allow me to make mistakes and then blossom. 
but I believe that there was an element of tough love with Buddy. I, I think he really was compassionate and he had empathy um, for what the players went through, but there was also, you know, he was pretty harsh on them. So if we think about your own role in the two years you were on the show, and if we were to double click on compassion and empathy in regards to the work that you did with the athletes, how were you able to find that the delicate balance needed between being very compassionate and empathetic, but also holding them accountable for their own actions? And how were you able to deliver tough love, but to do so with empathy and compassion? I think that that's, you know, that's part of the, the challenge. Um, for me, it was, I, I, I realized that you have to love first. <laughs> the tough love component doesn't really work if there's not a, a good base of a, of a trusting relationship there, because then it comes off as nagging, bullying, um, you know, um, just flexing your power and ego really yeah. is what it kind of comes off of. As. And so I, I, I wasn't, you know, I learned it the hard way because earlier on in my career, I probably was a little bit more insecure about my own ability to do the job. And so I probably did lead with the tough part. And I think that when you lead with the tough part, it's because there's something inside of you that isn't quite confident enough to lead with something else. Mm -hmm. And so I probably did lead with the tough part early on in my career. But as I became better at my job and more secure within myself. And, and at the same time, I learned to see the athletes as human beings mm -hmm. and hear their story and listen to them. I think it all kind of came at the same time. I think mm -hmm. as I learned who the athletes were and heard their stories, they were growing me like the, those stories and those athletes I mean, I was at East Mississippi for eight years total. So six years before I filmed the show. And really it was, it was the, it was those years <laughs> that created the Brittany Wagner that everyone saw. I mean, it were those athletes that no one knows about because they weren't on a Netflix show, but they were the ones that really taught me how to be the counselor that I was by the time we were filming the show. And I think it was getting to know them and hearing their stories it was growing me into being the compassionate, loving person and, and figuring out the balance between loving them and having empathy for them, but also realizing that I, there's a, I can't enable them. Like, yeah. I, you know, that I have to teach them how to grow and stand on their own without me standing there telling them what to do. And, and it was baby steps. I mean, I would start out, you know, you, I, I say this all the time. People saw Ronald Ollie his second year with me. Yeah. If they had seen year one with me, it was, a, it would have been a totally different relationship, a totally different show because that was the year year one was the year where I was kind of having to break him, so to speak. I mean, mm -hmm. I was having to, ch he was challenging me and I was challenging right back. I mean, we were going toe to toe year one mm -hmm. and by year two, we had, we, we had broken and we, and we were trusting of each other and he trusted me and there was a relationship there. And I think, you know, that was what I, again, I, I could meet the athletes and observe and have awareness and see, okay, who, you know, who needs to be broken? Like who needs kind of that tough love component? 
And then I would start the process and it was slow. And, and in the beginning, there would be a lot of handholding and a lot of here's a pencil, you know, let me walk you to your class. But the idea was that you start that way. You don't end that way. And, mm-hmm. and that you grow that athlete to be able to um, skip down the hall with them at the end of their English comp two class because they yeah. made an A and they did it because they put forth the work and effort to get the grade. And, you know, and there, it, there was a, there was kind of a, there was a strategy, but, mm-hmm. but there was also, um, it, it was all individualized. You, you yeah. couldn't, you couldn't take 200 athletes and put them in a box and treat them all the same. It would have never worked. And so I, I think I had the awareness to know who needed what, and mm-hmm. then I would start the journey. Um, but the goal was that by the time they left, you know, they, they didn't need me anymore, which was kind of the, the sad part for me, but, but what needed to happen. Yeah. And, and what I saw in you was also deep patience, oh. you know, and, and having, <laughs> having patience, you know, at least on this, on the series, like, you know, like having patience and then, um, you know, being in control of your emotions in a way that allowed your best self to shine and impact the players. And I think that's one of the things that I, I want to ask you about is that your own emotional triggers, because, you know, like we all have our own triggers, right? So I'm not going to ask you what your triggers are. That's very personal, but how do you, how did you learn to deal with those triggers in moments that mattered most? Yeah, I think that, you know, that was a challenge. Um, And I'll be honest, I think that early on in my job there, Coach Stevens was a trigger for me. I mean, there was a lot there between the two of us that triggered me and I didn't always respond the way that I needed to with him. And I had to learn that. I had more issues um, maybe... with him being triggered by him than, than the athletes. I I could, Mm -hmm. I could, I I had empathy for the athletes. I didn't have empathy for him. I, I, I just didn't, I couldn't, I never found it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so I, you know, I had to learn, I think a lot of my work was in learning how to handle him. Mm -hmm. And then in learning how to handle him again, you grow, you know, as a whole person and then you're better for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, but with the athletes, you know, there were, I had boundaries. I mean, I had, I had boundaries and they knew them. I mean, (laughs) they knew, they knew that, and that I had a a routine in the morning and you didn't go and come in my office until that routine was completed. And they knew, they knew what that looked like. And so they would stand outside my door and they would wait until they knew till I sat down in my chair and it wasn't, if I wasn't sitting in my chair yet, don't come in my office because I needed that time to yeah. mentally prepare myself to do the job. And they knew it. Um, I had words that were not allowed to be said in my office. And I got to a point where I didn't even have to tell the freshmen anymore what those words were because the would say, Hey, you can't say that in here. And, and then that would be it. I mean, I, and so there were definitely boundaries and, you know, I think that there was a level of respect that I showed them. And then the, and then that level of respect was shown back to me. Um, when I had the cameras in the office, it was harder to, to have the moments where I would control my emotions because before the cameras, 
the players would go to class and I would have 30 minutes or an hour by myself while they were in class to clear my mind or do what I needed to do to get ready for the next, you know, influx of athletes. But when cameras are there, that was the time that they would interview me or, you know, other things would happen. And so there were, there were a lot of times where I I talk about it in the book where I would get in my car and drive, like just get in my car by myself and drive for 15 minutes or so to be alone and to have that moment where I could breathe and I could and I could reset because it was the only time I had mm-hmm. alone. I was never alone during the time that we were filming that show. And that was the hard part for me was figuring out like, how am I going to recenter and reset when there's always someone in here? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you I know, would get in my car. What I found when I was reading the book was nobody knows about your meditation, yoga, mindfulness practice until you read the book. So now I get it that that you were uh, you had done yoga you had practiced mindfulness so what you're describing is um, the deep act of um, self-awareness and knowing when you need to reset and recalibrate through the breath and you probably learned that through the workshops you went to and and you know the the yoga you did and the mindfulness that you learned yeah. about and that's a perfect segue into the opening chapter of your book next chance you uh, and there's a quote from Emmett Fox that you shared um, in the the first chapter, which is the art of life is to live in the present moment. And in that chapter, you also refer to the expression multiple times, be where your feet are. And that is total, you know, that's embodying mindfulness uh, 100%. So talk about um, this powerful opening chapter called show up and be present and what is it that you're hoping the readers uh, really learn and grasp on to? What are the main messages from that first chapter that you want them to really understand and prioritize in their own life? You know, I think that when you're working with, ath- when I was working with athletes who had had traumatic life, that it's really hard to not focus on that. You know, it's not, it's hard to not focus on what you've experienced in your past or the, the dilemmas and the blocks that are there or that you're making up are there. <laughs> and, and so I, I had a sign in my office that said, control the controllables. And I would always ask the athlete, is this happening right now? Like, it, is this, is this a current situation or a current dilemma? And can you control it? Because if the answer is no to those two questions, let it go. Like, I mean, move on. There's nothing we can do about it. And, and I, and I was trying to teach them to be where their feet are, you know, and to, and to learn how to worry about yourself because, and I think in today's world, especially because of social media, because of the access that we have to information, we are, we are very rarely where our feet are. We are, we are either in what happened yesterday and everyone's reaction to it or in what is going to happen, or we think is going to happen, or what everyone else is doing or going to think, but we're very rarely in our own space. Mm-hmm. And that's not healthy. I mean, you can't, you can't maintain a healthy lifestyle if you're never in your own space in the moment that is right this minute. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there was no other way for me to open this book <laughs> Than to say, first, at first thing you got to do is show up. 
because we're, I don't think we're showing up. I think we're checking the boxes, you know, I mean, we're checking the boxes off of life of the things that we think we, we are supposed to do, but we're not actively showing up for our own lives. We're not taking responsibility. We're not standing up for our own selves. We're not putting forth actual effort. And, and, and you know, I used to say to the athletes, you're not going to make the best grade possible in a class you don't show up to. You may be able to finagle a C, but you could have made a B or an A if, you'd, if you would have actually showed up and tried. And I feel the same way about life. You know, we, there, there are some of us that, are, that have charisma and smarts enough to pull out, you know, pull out some situations or to, mm-hmm. to, to pull together an okay life mm-hmm. without actually putting forth effort. But, but what could we actually, actually uh, build if we were putting forth effort? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think that it also applies you know, I, I would, I say in the book, you can't show up for PE and not chemistry because mm-hmm. I think we're really good at showing up for the things that are easy for us or that we want to show up for, you know, mm-hmm. there are people that are workaholics. Well, okay. But what, what about your relationships at home? Like what, you know, there are people that work out like crazy and that's not their weakness. Showing up to the gym is not their weakness, but, but they don't show up for anything else in their life. Like, yeah. and I think you have to be realistic I call it the wicker baskets of your life. You have to be mm-hmm. realistic about the components of your life. And are you balancing your effort out in all of them? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not, then what are you numbing? Like, what are you, you know, then why not? Um, and, because I think really showing up for your life is balancing out the wicker baskets and putting forth effort into all of them, whether you're good at it or like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think of the mask, you know, the mask that people wear and, and the mask is to cover up imposter syndrome, you know, and you talk about imposter syndrome in the book. And I want to dive into the concept of fear because you talk about fear in the book. And I'm a big believer, like, you know, the vision board idea from your book is like, I surround myself with, with quotes and, and, you know, my boys are 16 and 18. My wife is a mindfulness teacher and, and has embodied mindfulness the last probably 10 or 15 years. So we have chalkboard walls in our house and we put up quotes all the time and we talk about the quotes. And and I wanna dive into, I wanna share with you two quotes that I have up in my office that I'm looking at right now. And, and then I wanna ask you a question about what resonates because you talk about this concept of fear in your book and overcoming fear. And these quotes are a reminder to me that I need to always overcome fear in my own life when trying to live with passion and to be courageously bold in regards to the work that I do. And the first quote is the attempt to escape pain is what creates more of it. And that's by Dr. Gabor Mate, who's in a fantastic um, Canadian psychologist who is a best-selling author. And the second quote is the cave we fear holds the treasure we seek by Dr. Carl Jung. So in turning it back to you and your work, what do you feel you've learned about the concept of fear in your own life? And how did your understanding of how to deal with fear change over time? So that's the first question, right? Let's just, I, I have another question after, but let's just go with that. So how did your understanding of fear change over time? 
based on your own life experiences and what you wanted to bring to the athletes that you worked with? You know, I think a lot of times the thing that we fear the most is something that we have already lived through. Um, and I'm not talking about like fear of spiders and fear of, I'm, I'm talking about like deep rooted fears. So for a lot of athletes, there was the fear of abandonment because they had already been abandoned and they didn't want to go through that pain again. And so some of my, um, some of what I would try to do is to point out that it's already happened and you lived and you're here, you know, you've already, you've already overcome it. So why are you afraid of it? Why are you afraid of something that you've already trucked, you know? And, and because I think a lot of times we are so focused on, you know, I don't want to be abandoned again, so I'll never get close to anybody. You know, I, I will, I will keep the wall up and I'll never get close to anybody because I don't want to feel it again. Well, what are you creating? You're creating abandonment because yes. <laughs> you're not allowing anyone. So you're creating the very thing that you're afraid of because you're not recognizing that you've already figured out how to overcome it. And, and, you know, I think that that is when you, when you can wrap your brain around that and you can realize that, you know, for me, it's like the fear of being alone. Okay. Well, I've, I've, I'm alone. Like, I, you know, I've, I've been alone for 10 years and guess what? I'm, 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 I'm okay. Like, mm. I, and, you know, I think one of the first I was, I was struggling with being a single mom and being alone and all of the, th not being enough and all the things. And I was in a mindfulness class and I'm sitting there and I'm crying and I'm, you know, I'm trying so hard to be mindful and all the things that they're telling you to do. And we got done and the teacher was like, you know, Brittany, what, what, what's your, like, talk to us about your, what just happened to you. And I, and I said, I just had the realization that I'm okay. <laughs> like, I, I don't know why I'm afraid of this because I'm okay. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that is the key to kind of letting the fear go is realizing that most of the time, the very thing we're afraid of, we've already figured out how to live through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I also, I think, what you focus on expands. Mm -hmm. And and when you're focused on fear, it gets bigger, you know, and, and you create, it's like the athletes, the fear of abandonment. And so I create the wall. Well, you're creating the very thing that you don't want because that's what you're focused on. If you, you know, folk flip it, like instead of focusing on the negative, focus on the positive part of it, like focus on having meaningful relationships. And then as you're focusing on that, you will subconsciously lower the wall that is creating the abandonment. Mm -hmm. But we're oftentimes, we can't get ourselves off of the fear long enough to focus on the positive. And that's deeply rooted in positive psychology, Dr. Martin Seligman's work. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Flourish, his, his best-selling book, amazing. And it's, it's building a skill. It's not something you're born with, no. uh, you know, that you have, you actually build the skill. And that's what people don't understand is that you can build the internal capacity uh, to focus on your strengths in order to flourish. 
And what you talk about in the book is this power of uh, personal narrative. And that's where I, I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we we finish. But you know, a lot of your book is about constructing a, an empowering personal narrative and going back to the quotes that I have on my wall. This is one that has stayed on our big chalkboard wall right out at our main entrance that is like three meters wide by three meters wide. It's massive. And I will not erase it and put up another quote. It's been there for two years. And it's by a well-known performance psychologist, uh, Dr. Jim Lohr, who he's been on the podcast. He's written a number of best-selling books and has worked with 17 world number ones in their sport. Uh, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, lots of the the tennis players. But what he says is, the, the quote is, the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How well you revisit the tone and quality of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It's the master storyteller. And the stories we tell ourselves create our reality. And your book is all about this. So when you think of the quote I just shared with you, what resonates with you and what tools and strategies do you share in your book that help people better understand the importance of being kind and compassionate with themselves and to create an empowering personal narrative that helps them to truly achieve what's possible in their lives? Yeah, I think that that probably was the main thing that athletes I worked with struggled with was the stories that they made up, the, the things that, that, and some of it had been, were things that people told them over and over and over again. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think about it all the time, being from Mississippi alone in and of itself and, and the, the stigma that that state has on it and, and just the labels and the stigma and the, and the, for me, the, the things that come along with just being from that state and the things you hear being said in a place like that. And, you know, for these athletes, when you have people telling them over and over and over again, you better be good at football because you won't be good at anything else. I mean, that becomes a story that they live out because it's, it's Mm -hmm. in their head all the time. I have to be great at this. I'm not good enough to be good at anything else. And so for me, a lot of times it was, it was changing the narrative, changing the voice in their head, like changing the story in their head. And you you can't, I, I, I talk about creating small successes because you can't just say to someone, it is a practice. And so you can't just say to someone, well, change the story that you're telling yourself in your head. It's not that easy. I mean, it's something that's been resonating in your head for a long time. And so I would try to create success in the area that they didn't think they could be successful in. Mm-hmm. And, and I talk about, I tell the story in the book about asking the English teachers to do a diagnostic essay yeah, by yeah. first day of English Great class. Story. Like yeah. make the athletes write, make everybody, you know, write this diagnostic essay that it will not be graded for a grade in the grade book. It's, it's for you to see the level of their writing. And then I would say, but can you grade the athletes? (laughs) And then I would go through them and I would pick out the the ones that had A's, B's, who I knew were struggling with the fact that they were smart enough to be there. Mm -hmm. Because there were so many athletes who wouldn't succeed in the classroom just simply off of the fact that they told themselves every day they weren't smart enough to succeed in the classroom. Mm -hmm. 
And so I would write off the bat, you know, first week of freshman year, pull them in my office and I would make a huge deal out of you just made an A on your first college essay. And, and, and it wasn't going in the grade book. It wasn't some, it wasn't, you know, even going to count, but it didn't matter because it counted in their mind. And if we could create that moment where they could see, oh, wait, I can, maybe I can do this. Like maybe, maybe that story that I'm telling myself is a lie. And, and for me, I needed to create several of those stories for those guys who had the deep rooted thoughts about themselves in order for them to start believe it, believing it. And then if I could get them to just kind of buy in, <laughs> you know, and, and then over time it, that grows, like that buy-in grows. And then next thing you know, you have somebody succeeding in the classroom and really believing in the fact that they're smart and could maybe be good at something other than football. And, but, but it, it starts, I thought, I think for, for my work, it started with creating success somewhere other than the football, you know, and I, and I think I learned that watching them at practice, you know, I would watch the freshmen walk out on the field and I would see them scared. You know, I would see them a little nervous and scared. Like maybe I'm not good enough to play here. I I would, I, I could read the body language and then I would see them catch the first pass. And all of that would go away and they would be the cocky, you know, arrogant, bowed up wide receiver that we recruited them to be. <laughs> but I, and, and so I started watching that and, and I, I would think like, OK, I got I need to recreate that scenario in the classroom. I, mm-hmm. I need to throw them the first pass and let them and, and then let it all, let all the fear and anxiety go. And so I would I would I really focused on that. I focused on creating successful moments in the classroom. Yeah. And I think that came alive and I'm just showing you uh, for those listening to this right now, they can't see the video, but I'm showing Brittany James Clear's book, uh, Atomic Habits. And the the greatest thing from that book is the, uh, what, what does he say? The, the, uh, the aggregation of marginal gains, you know, 1% better. And what you're describing is like pulling them back to their internal strengths and it's not about accomplishing everything at once. You know, they've accomplished everything on the football field, the touchdowns, the tackles, the sacks, the, the rushing yardage. Um, but really, it's this, uh, you know, aggregation of marginal gains in terms of, of their intelligence and what they're able to, to accomplish. And that's what comes alive in, in this show, but also more so in the book. And that's why the the book is such a wonderful read, and um, and we'll get to where people can find it. But um, before I segue into the last part of the show, I want to ask you to think about your own life and the ups and downs you've experienced, as well as your amazing opportunities that you've been blessed with, and tell us about your connection with Courtney Cox and the role she played in getting your inspiring story more out there in the world. Yeah. Uh- I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing how many people watch Last Chance You, and not just regular people, but celebrities and, and people with um, influence, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michael Strahan um, obviously was a football player and, and watched Last Chance You and loved it. He has an entertainment company. And so he got someone in his entertainment company, uh, was started persuading other, some actresses to watch the show. Courtney was one of them. She watched it. She's from the South. 
Um, and so a big football fan, even though she's mm-hmm. lived in California for some time now, she loved the show and together, uh, smack entertainment. And then Courtney decided like, Hey, let's, let's reach out to her and see if we can, you know, do a scripted, she would be interested in doing a scripted series. And so it's just one of those days where you log into your email and you have an email from, you know, Michael Strahan and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so yeah, so they, uh, we have, we are in the process it's in development and with spectrum originals to be a scripted series where Courtney will play, uh, me and in my role as an academic counselor, but also showing a little bit of my personal life as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And that just shows you the, the impact. So if you were to reflect back, you know, 15 years ago, would you ever have imagined your life turning out this way? No, I mean, no, no, that's the, you know, you don't dream of this. Like I, I don't, I don't know that you have, you know, I, I don't know, a girl from Mississippi who, who had no, no idea what I wanted to do with my life kind of fell into this athletic academic thing, realizing that it, it was my thing, but I fell into it. You know, you don't have dreams this big. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tell that story a lot. I tell, I, I talk about that a lot when I'm talking to young people that you have to, you have to embrace opportunities, Mm -hmm. even when they're not shiny, because there are dreams out there that you can't even dream. Like there, there are possibilities out there that your mind is not able to even dream about. And so to limit yourself to a dream is limiting because I mean, my dream was to be an academic counselor at a, at a bigger school. I mean, you know, that was it for me. I didn't, and, and, but, but I took opportunities that weren't shiny and then I worked. And I think when you do that, you, you know, you manifest things that you can't even dream about. Yeah. And I, I just it, never in a million years thought any yeah. of this would happen. And I, I think what you're talking about is alignment, you know, and, and if you live a truly aligned life and, and you can align your thoughts, your words, your actions, and you can deeply connect with what's most important in your heart, and you do so with consistency, great things, the universe will unfold for you. And, you know, I won't go deep into this, but I will tell you that I I was almost killed in an accident in Cambodia. And, you know, my ulnar artery was severed, and I almost bled out in this accident. So I needed to fly to Bangkok for surgery. And our insurance at the time turned us down for my surgery. So I'm in Bangkok to have my ulnar artery uh, reattached. And, and I went back to the airport in Bangkok with my wife to fly back to Cambodia and I'm bandaged up. And it's the first time since I was a kid that I prayed to God. I, I tell you with full sincerity, I walked to the corner of the airport and I prayed to God for an understanding of why it happened to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, please give me a sign that I'm going to be okay. And I won't go into details, but God revealed himself in many different ways in my life over the next six months that showed me that he was there for me. The universe was there for me, whatever. So I still don't go to church, but I'm very spiritual 
And I believe that when we connect with what matters most in our life, the doors of opportunity continue to open. And that's my philosophy now. And that's what I share on my podcast is this idea that um, greatness is truly within. And your story exemplifies that, Brittany. And, and that's why I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. And so in closing, my last question, if we were to fast forward 20 to 30 years from now, and you were able to reflect back on the things you had accomplished in your life, what is it that you will have been most proud of? Um, 20 to 30 years from now, what I will be most proud of is raising a compassionate, kind, aware woman. Kennedy, right? Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. And doing it in a way that I never thought I would be doing it or wanted to do it. You know, I mean, I I've since she was four, it's been the two of us and her uh, um, father lives in another state. So, you know, it's, it's just me and Kennedy and I, I didn't that you don't have a child and want that necessarily, or I didn't. Um, and, and there were days where I didn't think I could, you know, I thought, I just thought I can't do this alone. Um, and I have, and I, you know, and I, and so, and I think that she is a, she's an amazing 13 year old, which is an oxymoron, but (laughs) she is, and I can't wait to see what she will be in 20 to 30 years. So what was, what will she say as a 40 year old when talking about you? What, what do you hope she says when she describes her mother, Brittany? I hope that she says that I was real, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was, I was real. And when I struggled, I said I was struggling. And when I was good, you know, I, I, I hope that that's, you know, a lot of people say, oh, she's witnessing such a strong, independent woman. Okay. I mean, I, you know, like, that's not really what I want her to see. I, I want her to just see that you have to be your own hero, but you also have to ask for help, you know, <laughs> like it's okay to, to not be okay. Like it's okay to have days, good days and bad days. It's okay to say the wrong thing and have to apologize, you know? Um, and, and that's what I want her to see. You know, that's what I want her to see is that, you know what my, yes, to all of you people out there who saw my mom on TV, she's great. She's real. She's real. real. That's what I want her to see, you know, that I, that I'm, that I'm a person and I'm real and I'm not always perfect. Um, and I'll admit it when I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I think of Matthew McConaughey's speech where he says he's always chasing his hero. Yeah. Um, you know, I, in five years, I'll still be chasing my hero. And he, to this day, despite his success, is, is saying, I'm still chasing my hero of who yes. I want to become. And, yeah. and that's why your story is so powerful and your platform is so powerful. And um, where can people find you? They can simply just put in Brittany Wagner and they'll find you, but just let the listeners know where they can find you, your work and your book. Yeah. So my website is brittanywagner.com. Um, and then I do a lot of motivational speaking events. I've been doing them via zoom, but now I'm back live. So, um, you can go to my website to find out where I'll be or to book me for a speaking engagement. 
And then I'm on social media. I have Twitter and Instagram are the main two, but it's Brittany underscore MS girl for Mississippi girl, a Facebook fan page, which is Brittany Wagner. And then the book, um, my copy has lots of tabs, but (laughs) the book um, is, can be ordered online through Amazon or any bookstore. Um, And then the audible version is also available with me um, as the narrator. Awesome, Brittany. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I think people will gain a lot of value from following you and your work and and really uh, spending the time to unpack the great stuff in, in your book itself. So thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. So I'm going to close out the show and then I'll just say goodbye to you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Brittany Wagner. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vasily.